0: Christ. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then returned. He summoned 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 pounds and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves, to whom he had given the money, to be summoned, so that they might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your kind has made 10 more pounds. He said to them, well done, good slave. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of 10 cities the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five times." He said to him, And you rule over five cities. Then the other came, saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then, when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him, and give it to the one who has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come oh. oh. Thank you very much to town Gallian for uh, the very kind of invitation to be here and to say a few words. Now the parable of the talents, as it's called, or indeed, as you said, on the gospel of the pounds, I must confess, is one with which I struggle a bit. We've just heard the account from St. Luke 19, very similar in many ways to the Matthew 25, although they are from different sources apparently. Now from when I was a boy in Sunday school about 100 years ago, <laughs> I always thought the third sermon got a bit of a I'm Sure you do too. And in fact, I still think that. After all, you know, he could have teared off with the talent. Or well, with the power in that translation, but he didn't. And I've always thought, in this value at least, a degree of discomfort about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Yet the experience shows, and no doubt you will bear out, that in many of the sermons that I'm sure we have all heard on this passage, preachers take one of two routes. or else with the moralizing. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, in the first, the term is taken as accumulation of wealth equals a sign of being found in favor with God, which is wonderful news if you're rich, but not so good for the poor. And in the second approach, if you In the New Testament, means a huge amount of money, a lifetime's earnings, and has nothing at all to do with being able to sing in the choir or to lead a youth group or to become secretary of the state, vestry, or whatever. Is it not our experience that innumerable sermons exhort us, we've heard them in the past, to use our talents in God's service? Which is a very honourable thing to do, of course, but not really the message of the parable. So, I think for a moment it's good to maybe go back to basics and grasp how shocking and how scandalous this parable would have been. To admire the good business sense of the first two servants who invest their money and get such a fantastic yield tenfold or fivefold as the cases may be. And we are up to scorn the servant who buries his money in the ground just as we scorn people today a bit who stuff their life savings away into mattresses. We do need to think carefully about making money work for us. I know. And a man who was preparing my tax return for inland revenue told me recently that a few months ago he had to tell one of his customers, he had go to see one of his customers about his tax bill. And the man was very well healed man and um, he said to the man, the man said, how much do I need to pay? And so the tax consultant said, well, actually, you need to pay 800000 And you know what the man said? He didn't say no, but he didn't say $800,000. You've got to be joking. That's far too much. I couldn't pay that." No, No, he said, he said, I wonder, would the inland revenue look after a million euro me until this time last year, and then give it back to me because the bank is charging me interest for keeping for keeping the money? <laughs> yeah. now, I was very interested to learn that people in the ancient world thought differently to how we might think. When this parable was being told by Jesus, the rabbis taught that when someone entrusts you with a large sum of money, burying it in the ground for safekeeping was the most morally responsible thing to do. The underlying premise was that the supply of this world's goods is finite and already distributed. If you are born rich, fine. But if not, and the only way you could get rich was by making someone else poor. People who became wealthy through their business dealings were universally suspected, you see, of fraud or deceit or theft, some kind of, on- of a shady deal. Financial success was not the badge of respectability that, for some at least, it is today. original audience probably regarded the first two servants as shady and dishonest characters, just like their master who reaps where he hasn't sown, gathers where he hasn't scattered. And the great scandal of the parable is that these disreputable servants end up being rewarded while the honest servant ends up being punished. Now, very interesting, a thematically varied Appears in the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, which didn't make its way into canon, wherein the servant who hid his money from his cruel master is rebuked, but presented as more righteous than the wealthiest servant who squandered his money according to this account and was cast into darkness. I. What does Jesus mean by telling such a story which violates moral and social boundaries? Is he perhaps challenging us to imagine a different kind of world governed by different economic laws with a different kind of wealth dominated in a different kind of currency? In a world of finitude and scarcity, hoarding treasure makes perfect sense in certain circumstances, but many of the talents in the parable represent not commodities to be invested or hoarded, but rather spiritual gifts to be shared. There was a lady called Dr. Anna Carter Lawrence, and she is a professor of preaching at Columbia Theological Seminary. It is a Presbyterian seminary in the state of Georgia, in the USA. She proposes telling the story in this way. And I think this is a messy nice of the this, this is what she says of this parable. A man, let's call him Jesus. Was going on a journey. He called his servants, let's call them disciples, and entrusted the gospel to them. To one, he gave stories, to another, he gave compassion, to the third, he gave the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Then Jesus went away. The disciple who the stories went out and told them. And soon there were ten other disciples telling those stories. The disciple who received compassion went out and offered it to five other people who also became disciples and practiced compassion with all those whom they met. But the disciples who had been given the bread of life and the cup of salvation dug a hole in the ground and buried them. To Jesus' return, he learned what the first two disciples had done and praised them as good and trustworthy disciples and invited them to enter his joy. The third servant told Jesus that he had hid the bread of life and cup of salvation in the ground because he had no idea what to do with them and was scared of doing the wrong thing and of what Jesus might do to him if he did Here, he told Jesus, you can have them back. When he handed back the bread and cup, Jesus responded by saying, for all those who have good news, even more will be given to them. But for those who have nothing, because they have buried my gospel in the ground, everything will be taken away from them. As for this worthless disciple, throw them into the outer darkness where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then this lady from the Presbyterian and me adds this in her story. She says, and this is very significant, she says, then, this is, she's imagining Jesus saying this. Bring them back and get them in to see a good pastoral counselor. In my mind, there's no better way to bring this parable alive than maybe through that lady's imaginative retelling of it. And question, the only question I would leave with us is this Jesus entrusts us, his church, with the gospel stories and compassion and sacraments including the bread of life and the cup of salvation the creeds, the liturgy, the prayers and all gifts of grace. What do we do as his disciples and servants to each other? What do we as his disciples and servants to each other do? He intends us to share these spiritual treasures liberally our great temptation is to fear that unless we build a fence around them to protect them, they will become almost like corrupted by the world, and we lose them. By keeping them to ourselves, we end up effectively burying them the ground. Paradoxically, only by giving them away do we And when when we share them freely and generously and abundantly, what do we find? We find that they keep on (coughs) multiplying until our Master returns and bids us enter into his joy. In the name of the Father, and of the sum of the police oh,